Welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I'd like to talk to you about technique mastery. Just the other day, I had a new patient attempt to inform me of how I needed to adjust her. She said it would never work to do it any other way. Well, that sounds like a challenge to me. I convinced her to let me try it my way, and I proceeded to give her the best adjustment of her life. In the process, I remember thinking that there was a time when I wouldn't have been so bold, because I didn't know if I could live up to the promise. But on this day, I knew I could give her the best adjustment she had ever received, and that adjustment was more than 20 years in the making. So let's talk about this. Today I'll be sharing from my own experience, combined with lessons from the book Mastery by Robert Greene. I also highly recommend the book The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. It actually has very little to do with tennis and more to do with getting your mind right. So what is a perfect adjustment and how do you achieve technique mastery? Let's take a look. I don't usually share much about my personal story because I never wanted this podcast to be about me, not to mention it would be a really long story if I tell it right. But today I'm going to start off by telling you a small portion of my chiropractic story because it's relevant to our topic. Before I started chiropractic school, I was finishing off some prerequisites. I was attending a small school in East LA with an accelerator program. I made friends with a guy in one of my classes and I started tutoring him simply because I wanted to see him succeed. He was a funny guy and he was always entertaining. Little did I know he was actually a professional comedian. In fact, you can look him up on YouTube and you can easily find his stand-up comedy. His name is Jeff Martyr. Jeff and I would usually go to the patio on the roof because that was the designated study space and a lot of people could go up there and smoke. Well, one day it was raining in LA. What are the odds? Since nobody wanted to go up to the roof, they all crammed onto the front patio, which was only about a tenth of the space as the roof. Everyone was crammed in shoulder to shoulder and we could hardly move. To this day, I will never know what Jeff saw but in an attempt to respond with a joke, he said, that looks like a Gonstead adjustment. I guess the blank stare on my face must have given me away because he said, you don't know what that is, do you? I have no idea what you're talking about, I responded. Jeff suddenly became very serious and he said, when you get to school, you have to look up the Gonstead technique. They are the Jedi Knights of chiropractic. For you to understand just how sold I was on Gonstead at that very moment, it's important to understand that when I was five years old, I watched Star Wars every single day. That is not an exaggeration or a hyperbole. My mom would testify in court that I watched that movie every day. His statement reached inside of me and grabbed hold of that five-year-old kid, and I knew immediately that I just had a life-altering moment. That was only the beginning of the journey, and perhaps I'll share the rest some other time. But that moment created a perspective in my head that I've held on to for almost 25 years. I often think back to that moment and his mention of Jedi Knight superimposed an entire structure over my whole career. Isn't the journey of a Jedi Knight to attain mastery, first as a Padawan, then as a teacher, and ultimately as a member of the Jedi Council? When I graduated, I saw myself as a Padawan, and I knew that I needed years of dedicated hard work just to hope that I could achieve a higher level. It was during that time that I called on my athletic training from what seems like another lifetime to begin building technical skills. One unique event was when I played quarterback in a Southern California All-Star game. I was used to being the best player on the field, no matter who we played. But during our first practice, it became painfully obvious that we were all used to that, and nobody really stood out, and the gaps were very small. 
My coach then told me that he did not like how I was throwing the ball, and he wanted to rebuild my throwing motion from the ground up. I just lost all of my physical advantage, and now I have to learn to throw the ball all over again? I had already been stripped of my superpower because I was surrounded by people who were just as physically gifted as I was, but now I had the insecurity of not having any confidence in my ability to throw. This is where we stumble upon two important aspects of mastery that I discovered accidentally. The first is to approach learning as a child who is completely reliant on their mentor. There's a tendency for all humans, when we're faced with a new philosophy, to acquire a degree of smugness, and it's this smugness that forms one of the greatest obstacles to learning and mastery. In my case, I didn't have much confidence in my throwing motion either, and I knew it could be better. That's probably the biggest reason why I never developed any smugness and I never pushed back against my coach when he attempted to make changes. If, on the other hand, I had been confident in my throwing motion, or if you're confident in your adjusting motion, and someone attempts to make changes, you might be acutely aware that something inside of you wants to push back. That pushback is the smugness that comes from confidence. Whether or not your confidence is appropriate or misplaced is another story altogether. The second principle is to trust the process. When you play in an all-star game, you practice every day for two weeks before you play the game. It's safe to say that at the end of the first week, my passing was much worse than when I had arrived. My coach even pulled me aside to make sure I wasn't frustrated or losing interest. I assured him I wasn't. For me, it was easy to trust the process, and he was a very accomplished coach, so I had even more trust in him than I had in myself. The next step was to create obstacles, but not easy obstacles. One day, my coach had me stand in the end zone. He then put the punter on the opposite 40-yard line, so he was 60 yards away from me. He said, he's going to punt the ball to you. I want you to catch it and throw it back. Now, a 60-yard punt is no joke. When this guy kicked the ball, it looked like it was going to exit the atmosphere and continue on into space. By some miracle, I managed to catch the ball. When the entire team erupted in applause, I realized that they were all standing around watching. Great, an audience. I began looking for someone I could throw it to, who was halfway between me and the punter. My coach saw me and he yelled, throw it all the way back. I think he saw the terror in my face. Remember, he said, grip the ball tight, aim with your elbow, release the ball above your head, and flick it with your wrist. Now stop thinking about it and let it fly. I gave it all I had as the ball leapt off my fingertips and soared toward the punter, hitting him directly between the numbers without him ever taking a step in any direction. The collective reaction from the observing crowd was nothing compared to what was going on in my head. It was a karate kid kind of moment. For a week, my coach had worked me through drills to create muscle memory with many errant throws and very little to be proud of. But in that moment, he proved decisively that all the drills were not for nothing. Even more than the obvious result of my throw was the fact that it felt so natural, like I had been doing it my entire life. I had put my faith in the process and it had paid off big time. A week later, we played the game. We had two quarterbacks on my team, so I played the first and fourth quarter. At the end of the game, my completion percentage was 100%, and I threw the only touchdown pass in the game. It was a beautiful pass to the back corner of the end zone that dropped right in front of the receiver. I have no hesitation in telling you that none of that would have happened if we had not remade my throwing motion. So let's take all this and describe a path pathway for technique mastery, particularly creating great adjustments. When I graduated from chiropractic school, I was a terrible adjuster. I probably had too many mentors, and most of them didn't agree with one another. So all of that contradictory information left me very confused. 
Coordination was never my problem, but I didn't really understand what I was trying to do. In my first year of practice, I decided that I needed to go back and completely rebuild all of my adjustments from the ground up. Take nothing for granted. I immediately thought of that experience on the All-Star game, and that gave me the confidence to trust the process. When things get tough and we face opposition and failure, we tend to subconsciously give up before we actually quit. When we trust the process, we prepare for the long haul, knowing there will be tough days and a lot of failure. But we commit to carrying on because we know it's simply a matter of time and effort. If you're struggling, then give it more time and more effort. Don't beat yourself up along the way. As helpful as it is to have a mentor, and I always recommend that you do, it's also possible to self-mentor. The poet John Keats gives a great example of how to do this. He decided to write a poem, but not just any poem. His poem would be 4,000 lines, and he gave himself the impossible goal of writing it in seven months. He disciplined himself to write 50 lines every day. He worked tirelessly for seven months, at which point he became frustrated with the poem. He felt many of the lines were forced, and he wasn't sure where the whole thing was going, leading him to eventually abandon the poem. Ultimately, Keats felt that the poem was mediocre at best. However, he was just as sure that none of his great works, which came after, would have ever been possible without the experience gleaned from this great undertaking. In like manner, Mozart composed for 10 years before creating anything noteworthy. His only advantage was that he started composing at the age of 16. In fact, a review of 70 great composers found that only three were able to produce a great work in less than 10 years of composing, and all three of the exceptions did it in nine years. The point being that you will not achieve mastery during the short time that you are in school, and not likely soon afterward either. We live in a strange culture, in the U.S. anyway, that rarely appreciates true mastery and thinks it's something that can be attained easily and with little effort. I've always loved what Kobe Bryant said about mastery. Fall in love with the process and be you with no gimmicks. Modern day chiropractic is so filled with gimmicks that it's always refreshing to see someone achieve phenomenal results with adjusting alone. And trust me, the public thinks so too. So if you had to start all over from the beginning, how would I create a pathway to mastery in the least amount of time possible? First, I would focus on the what and the how. What are you trying to do? How do you intend to accomplish that? Study the spine and the disc. How does it move? And what feels natural and unnatural? Your adjustment should always accentuate the natural and it should never force the unnatural. A perfect adjustment is all about what is happening at the disc. I've often given the analogy that it doesn't make much sense to correct a batter's batting stance if he's hitting every ball out of the park. I am far less concerned about how you look than I am with what is happening at the disc. When you give an adjustment, what are you feeling for? Can you feel the shift in the nucleus? Do you feel the relaxation of the muscles and the nerves? Is your, three, is your thrust P to A, or is it just P to A-ish? When you get a cavitation, is it the joint you're aiming for, or another one? The joint that makes noise gives you honest feedback on whether or not you are accomplishing your goal. So that is goal number one. Focus on the what and the how, and never stop increasing your knowledge and understanding. Second, create challenges. A great training mantra in sports is that you train for where you are, not where you want to be. Too many people make the mistake of overtraining, thinking that, thinking that they need to push way beyond their limits. 
That's how you create injury and burnout. The successful route is to know with great precision what your limits are and to push just a little bit harder. Not much, just a little bit harder. Do you know your limits in chiropractic? Do you know what you do well and what you do poorly? Be honest with yourself. Those who attain mastery are known to be more honest with themselves than those who do not. If you do something well, why do you do it well? If you do something poorly, why do you do it poorly? For example, let's say you aren't good at pulling a fifth lumbar. Why not? Are you unclear on what you're trying to do? Are you unclear on what your contact point is? Are you uncoordinated or unable to create power? Is your stabilization poor or you cannot create patient relaxation? Let's say your problem is lack of coordination and power, since that's one I hear a lot. Once you target the problem as a lack of coordination and balance, then you can begin to solve it by addressing this issue specifically. One exercise that I used to do for this problem was to perform the entire adjustment on one leg. I would put the patient into position. I would then position myself. I would lift my stabilization leg and hold it in the air. I would find the contact and roll the patient into position all while holding my leg in the air. I would then move the stabilization leg into position and complete the adjustment. Initially, I could not pull this off, so I knew I needed to keep doing it until I could. I did the same thing with push moves, holding the leg in the air to create strength and balance. This is just one example, but it's necessary to get creative and create challenges once you know where the root of the problem lies. Third, and this is something that I definitely learned from playing football, you need to use drills to create muscle memory. When I played football in college, they moved me from quarterback to free safety so they could take advantage of my size, speed, and knowledge of how quarterbacks think. This position was new to me, so I had to create new habits like learning to sprint backwards. At the college level, the game moves so fast that if you have to wait to see what happens before you react to it, you've already been beat. So we also have to create instincts that cause you to react to cues before your brain has really registered what's happening. Both of these objectives are accomplished with drills. For me, I was starting all over, but I knew I could trust the process. My position coach was the defensive coordinator. He had many years of experience and he was excellent. Trusting the process was easy. Trusting myself was something else. I think that's where a lot of students fail. We know that others have come and gone before us, and there's an army of people who have learned the Gonstead technique, but in the back of our minds, we wonder if we will be one of them or will we wash out? As I mentioned before, there's always a point where we, where we mentally give up on ourselves before we quit. Just making the mental commitment to yourself that you will not give up and you will not quit, no matter how many times you fail or how hard it is, is often the difference between success and failure. We so often downplay the mental side of things, but I always knew on the football field that if I'm hurting, then so is everybody else. And that's my opportunity to take advantage if I'm just willing to push a little harder when everyone else is looking to back off. So let's talk about drills. For chiropractic, I think there are three different types of drills you must do. Power, speed, and precision. Let me say that again. Power drills, speed drills, and precision drills. So let's talk about power drills first. An old exercise we used to do is to cut a tennis ball in half, hold it in the palm of one hand, and thrust into it with the other. That's not a bad drill, but I don't think it's enough on its own. I also use power putty to strengthen my grip, 
fingertip push-ups, which you can also do from your knees, since it isn't really about the push-up as much as it's about getting the weight and pressure into your fingertips. For speed drills, you can thrust into the air, but I find this often creates sloppy technique and poor anticipation of what it's like to move a bone against resistance. I used to practice speed thrusting into the back of my calves. You can also use speed boards or a drop piece, but the real trick to mastering speed is to be able to maintain rigidity in your hand and still be fast. This is best developed by simply moving bones, and there really is no decent substitute for the real thing. Precision drills are something most people don't do, but here's a simple exercise you might find interesting. All you need is a tongue depressor and a marble. Put the marble on a flat surface. Place one end of the tongue depressor on the marble. Pinch the other end of the tongue depressor between your index finger and your thumb. Now practice moving the marble with complete control using the tongue depressor. Try doing it with both hands. You'll definitely find that one is easier than the other. This will give you a feel for the dynamics involved in moving a disc on the nucleus by using the spinous process as a lever. The fourth thing I would do is learn to give yourself honest criticism. You, shouldn't, you should be your own toughest critic, but you shouldn't be critical just for the sake of being critical. The honest part is more important than the critical part. Students who know me know that when I see videos of myself adjusting, I almost always hate them and I start telling them all the things I see that I don't like. At the same time, I've learned more that way than probably any other way. So in this day, where everyone has a camera in their pocket, we didn't have that luxury when I was in school, I would highly recommend videoing yourself as often as possible. Hopefully you'll hate what you see, but that's good. You need to move into the pain and begin dissecting every subtle movement so you can figure out how to make it better. I know some students who have videoed me and some other docs, so they have something to compare themselves to, and that makes it easier for them to figure out what they are doing wrong. Unfortunately, learning to give good adjustments is only one piece of the puzzle. We could shoot baskets all day long or hit in a batting cage, but that wouldn't make us a good basketball or baseball player. We always want to give the best adjustments possible, but we also need to, to work at palpating, reading x-rays, scoping, taking histories, and just generally communicating. How do we do this? The exact same approach. Create challenges, implement drills, and trust the process. Seek out failure because that's where learning and refinement take place. One of the biggest curses in success is to succeed on the first try. We usually fail to chalk it up to luck, which is most likely what it really is. Instead, we tend to think that we are imbued with some special ability, which then leads to spectacular and unexpected failure down the road when the cost is much higher. On the other hand, failure on the first attempt is often expected, but it's a chance for us to make some simple changes that will pay off in a big way. Successful people seek out ways to fail when the risk is low and the cost is cheap. These are the opportunities we need to create. Mastery should be the goal of everyone who understands this work. Too often we, as a profession, oversimplify what we do until chiropractic becomes little more than make noise, get paid. Make noise, get paid. Behind our names, we have the initials DC. These initials stand for detection and correction. That's the purpose of every chiropractor, or at least it should be. The book, The Inner Game of Tennis, also offers us some insight that's highly beneficial for obtaining technique mastery. In this book, the author discovers that as a tennis coach, telling people all the details about how to hit a proper forehand does very little to result in them actually hitting a better forehand. In fact, he found the opposite was true. The more he instructed them on proper body position and technique, 
the worse they would perform. One day he had an epiphany. He had a new student with no previous tennis experience. He decided it was the perfect opportunity to test his theory. He offered her no instruction, but he simply said, watch me hit 10 balls. Then he had her do it. The results weren't bad. Okay, now watch me hit 10 more. Now you do it. Her results were noticeably better. By the end of the first session, she was landing eight or nine balls out of every 10, exactly where she was supposed to. This led to a few important conclusions. The first is that detailed technical instruction does not improve our skills because it activates the wrong part of the brain. It can be used to improve our skills once we've achieved competence, but for the novice, it's a detrimental style of teaching. Instead, the greatest improvement comes from simply observing the mentor perform the act several times and then trying to imitate what we see. It's beneficial at this stage to have only one mentor. Otherwise, we will become confused by the different styles employed and our general ineptness. As a general principle, I often encourage people to have several mentors and to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of each. However, at this beginning stage, it's important to choose only one mentor until you've achieved a basic level of competence and success. The only thing that stands between you and mastery is time and effort. Just show up every day, put one foot in front of the other, and stay observant. One of the things we would do when I played football was to watch game film. When a play goes wrong, you run the film backwards until you find that moment where the play went from good to bad. In that moment, something subtle happened that caused the change. If you change that one simple thing, you get an entirely different result. You should evaluate your technique the same way, but not when you're drilling, training, or improving skills. So let's review the steps to mastery. First off, you must know yourself, and that means being brutally honest with yourself. You must have an accurate understanding of your strengths and weaknesses, or you will remain perpetually frustrated with the pursuit. You must become an apprentice. Remember, we are the Jedi Knights of chiropractic, and every Jedi begins as an apprentice. Approach your learning as a child who's completely dependent on their teacher. When I taught my daughter that 10 minus 4 equals 6, she never argued or attempted to prove me wrong, but she accepted it as truth, and, in her, and her only struggle was to make sense out of it. Mastery is created when we approach learning in the same way. If you don't trust your mentor to tell you the truth, then get a different mentor. Embrace criticism. Self-criticism is important, but so is the criticism of our mentor. There's an old saying that you should never accept criticism from someone you wouldn't take advice from. I think this is a good rule of thumb to keep in mind in this situation. Observe the results of your efforts, free from judgment. This is perhaps the most important lesson we can learn today. In the inner game of tennis, the author comments that engaging players in the exercise of observing the results of their effort without placing judgment on it is one of the fastest routes to rapid improvement. For example, you hit a forehand across the net. You do not judge whether it was a good hit or a bad hit. Instead, you take note of where did the ball strike the racket? Where would you like the ball to strike the racket? How did the ball spin? How would you like it to spin? Should the ball travel fast or slow? When performing an adjustment, where did you contact the spinous process? Where would you like to contact it? What was your line of drive? What would you like your line of drive to be? Was the thrust fast or slow? We're simply acknowledging what was and comparing it to the ideal of what we would like it to be. But there is no judgment. I never describe any of my adjustments as bad, but I will often say that it wasn't what I wanted and I can tell you how it differed from my ideal. 
but that doesn't mean it was bad, just less than ideal. Other people will also offer judgments of your performance. I find that many of these judgments are not productive. I was totally open to hearing the judgments that came from my coach, but I also received judgments from people in the crowd who might have thought that I screwed up a play even though they had never accomplished even half of what I had on a football field. I always found it really easy to tune out those opinions, and you should too. Let your actions do the talking, and let your results be your witness. Talk is cheap. I've often told people that I would never fear the guy walking around the football field running his mouth. It's the one who's silent that you better keep an eye on. When a guy has so much confidence in what he can do that he rarely feels the need to even say a word about it, you better watch out. But keep your ego in check. We often fail to recognize when our ego is driving the bus, but ego is the number one impediment to learning, especially when we don't even know it's there. The antidote to ego is the childlike approach that doesn't challenge what is taught, but seeks to understand and make sense of it. Most people have a fear of change and a mistrust of new paradigms. Ultimately, this is a root cause of why we fail to learn. Our minds naturally challenge and reject ideas that are alien to us. This rejection leads to ego and smugness it's an insidious process that we rarely even recognize is happening, but when it leads to frustration or giving up, then it's obviously not serving us. When I saw a video of Dr. Gossett adjusting when I was still a student, I knew then that it was possible. I just needed to figure out how. Finally, self-discipline is the pillar upon which you can build mastery. This is where we have to be honest with ourselves. Are you self-disciplined or not? Could you be more self-disciplined than you are? Then go get it. I hope you found this to be helpful and that you've picked up a trick or two on how to build a greater level of mastery. Mastery is always the goal, so let's get to work to become the greatest version of ourselves. As one Jedi Knight to another, I leave you with a quote from The Mandalorian. This is the way. I hope you have the best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.